I have three sons, and at times I had blue and green children. (laughs) Today we're going to look at a story in Mark that we referred to last week but didn't really talk about. I don't want to be repetitive, and I know that y'all remember every word that I say. So I did want to acknowledge that we did at least glancingly look at this story last week, but today we're going to zero in on it a bit. It's found in Mark chapter 6. It's a familiar story. Uh, Let's be standing as we hear this, the gospel, the word of God, according to his servant Mark, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given to him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown... Among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could, do, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. May God bless the reading of his word. They are three of the sweetest words in the English language. Three little words that all of us just love to hear. It just makes our day when someone says these words. It's almost like magic. Our spirits can be down and then all of a sudden someone says these three little words and we just soar and it feels so good, especially when that certain person the person you most want to hear these words from, says them to you. And what are these words? I love you. Oh, those are good words too, but that's not what I'm talking about. No, 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 no. The three words that really make us feel so good is when someone says, you were right. (laughs) Yeah. In the text we just read, there's a conflict. And like in most conflicts, some rather hurtful and hateful things were said. And the interesting thing is that these very hurtful and hateful sayings were right. That the people who left that assembly that day could pat themselves on the back and say, we were right. This happens in Jesus' hometown. Now, Mark doesn't name the hometown, but we assume that it was Nazareth. And it was obviously quite an event for Jesus to come back home. I mean, they didn't have the internet and TV and all the media that we have, but word got around about what was going on. That wasn't that large of an area. Ask Sean Lewis. He just got back from there. It's all kind of compact, isn't it, Sean? And so things that happened in the area of Galilee, that the word got around. And Jesus had been doing some amazing things there. 
as well as in other areas as well. Uh, they had heard about Jesus healing the, the sick, especially healing lepers. And remember the paralytic, the guy that they had to let down uh, through the roof, a hole in the roof, so that, that Jesus could heal him? They had heard those stories. They had heard stories about Jesus casting out demons. If we back up just to the beginning of the chapter before chapter 6, which is conveniently chapter 5, I guess it would be an easier way to say that, Jesus had cast a demon out of this crazy guy that had lived for years in the cemetery. Remember that story? And he would disrupt funeral services, running around screaming and hollering, and he was naked and you know, everybody looking. In. It was awful. And no one could do anything with the guy. But Jesus had walked in and had cast the demon out. Why, they had even heard that he calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Isn't that amazing? Now, we always think of the 12 apostles, the disciples, being in the boat there with him. And they witnessed that. But you can imagine someone that maybe got woke up by the lightning and thunder that lived close to the water. And there's this storm going on. It's just crazy, crazy, crazy. It's gone. They had heard these stories. They had heard that Jesus had even raised from the dead a little girl. Now, they had also heard about his teaching and how different that was. They had heard that he had gotten into some conflicts already and some tangles with the higher-ups in the Jewish religion. They had heard that he spoke with authority That's the thing that Mark really likes to emphasize in his gospel, is that when Jesus spoke, he spoke with authority. That people just recognized that this was something different. So here Jesus comes, and the town is abuzz. And it's a small village, maybe just a few hundred folks live in it. So when Jesus and his entourage arrive, you can imagine the stir. He brings with him 12 disciples or students or learners. Now, that in itself is pretty heady stuff. To have one of their local boys out, and he has made an impression on 12 men so deep that they are willing to abandon everything that they own, leave their homes, and go and follow and learn from this man. Some of them might have even known some of those disciples who were from that area. And then, although Mark doesn't mention the crowd here, usually when Jesus traveled, he had more than his 12 disciples. And so if he brought 100 folks with him, that just kind of turned that whole village upside down. So it's not surprising that when it came to Sabbath, and it was time to go to church or to synagogue, that they asked Jesus to speak. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what he said. Again, if we go back to other times Jesus was in the synagogue, what always comes up was he spoke with authority. And evidently, he had quite a sermon there. If we sort of skip over to Luke, we can find out that his text was from the book of Isaiah about the Messiah. Pretty heady stuff. And however it was that he presented his lesson, it says that many of the people there were amazed. And if we translate that literally, it says that they were blown away. However, they got to talking. And what they said sort of degenerates and kind of spirals downward. The first statement that we have recorded in Mark is they say, where did this man get this? 
If we were to translate that into our vernacular today, we might think, just who does he think he is? Because after all, they knew him, and they had a specific idea who he was. Now, I've wondered, and I wonder strange things sometimes, but I just wonder if Jesus maybe could have done this in a different way that wasn't quite so offensive. Probably not. Because it wasn't so much who he was and what he did and how he presented himself. It was really more their perception that caused the problem. There's a wonderful book that came out years ago by a man with a wonderful name. I just love to mention this book because I get to say the man's name. His name is Yaroslav Pelikan. How would you like to live with that one? He was a wonderful uh, professor in Yale Divinity School for years. Anyway, he wrote a book called Jesus Through the Centuries. And in this book, he traced back through church history the different perceptions of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is so multifaceted that no one generation can really capture all of who he is. And as the ages go by, we tend to focus on one or two particular things about Jesus, and that sort of becomes who we think he is. He talks about the times when Jesus was considered the conqueror. Well, certainly wartime and things like that, 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 that's an important element in Jesus. And so we want to see him as a conqueror. Other times he was known as the king. Other times the lamb of God. All of these are biblical, but we can focus on them maybe to the exclusion of other perceptions of Jesus. Now, it's really interesting as he begins to get into the 20th century, he talks about how the first half or so of the 20th century Jesus was primarily perceived as a lawgiver, that Jesus is the one who made the rules and that we were to live according to the rules. Well, he did give law. Paul talks about the law of Christ. He did give rules to live by. But the problem with that is, is that a rule giver is not very gracious, is he? A rule giver doesn't have much mercy and love. And so that's why beginning mid-century and a little past, most churches in the Protestant world kind of had a grace reformation. Uh, you thought only churches of Christ did that. And some of you older folks that used to go to those hellfire and brimstone sermons, you know, and they say, why don't we preach like that anymore? All they talk about is mercy and grace and love now. <laughs> well, we weren't alone in discovering the grace of God and renewing our impression of Jesus as one who is merciful and loving and gracious. But the only problem with that is, if that is our whole perception of who he is, then it's hard for him to make any demands on our life. It's hard for him to stand up to us and say, no, don't do that again. So we realize that we work out of a perception of who Jesus is, but we also realize that we watch and make sure that we are constantly enlarging that perception. Well, I've gotten a little bit further away from Nazareth than I planned on, so let's get back. At Nazareth, the perception was that Jesus was local boy, average Joe. In fact, maybe a little below average. Because as we go ahead and see what they're saying, they're saying things like, well, he's a carpenter. Now, that's not anything bad. It's good to be a carpenter. It's an honorable profession. 
But that doesn't you know, qualify you to go out and be this great teacher that everybody just thinks is wonderful. And then they say, and he's Mary's son, which is interesting because most, most often whenever someone was referred to, they were referred to as the son of the father. And so to say he's Mary's son may be kind of referring back to those little whispering stories that went around Nazareth back when Mary seemed to get pregnant just a little too quickly. And he says, and we know his family. We know his brothers. They live here. The brothers are even named. We know his sisters. Now, I don't know what his brothers and sisters were like when they were younger. I do know that two of his brothers turned out to be pretty good guys. James wrote uh, the, the epistle of James, or so we believe. And then Judas, or Jude, as he chose to go by. Not too many people wanted to be called Judas uh, a little bit further down the road, did they? But Jude wrote also a small epistle in the New Testament, and we believe those were Jesus' brothers. But we don't know what they were like when they were growing up. You know, someone may be standing there and go, well, little James hit a baseball through my window and ran off and never even apologized or anything. I, I know these kids. We used to see them hanging around the street corners. I know what they talked about. You know, so... Jesus was just nothing special. And the interesting thing is, they were right. For in that town, he truly was nothing special. As the story goes on to say, he could do no great powerful deeds in that town. Now, we try to clean that up a little bit. It kind of makes us nervous when we say, well, Jesus can't or couldn't. But the text just says it. He was unable. In fact, it says that he didn't have the power to do power there because of their lack of faith. Because they had already decided who he was. And they had already drawn boundaries in their life as to what he could do then that's all he could do. It does go on to say that he had compassion on uh, some of the sick that were there, and he was able to lay hands on them and heal them. Now, I would put that under power, but nothing else was he able to do. They were right about Jesus when they said he was nothing special. Okay, right there we could stop, but I'm not. Don't get too excited. I've still got a few minutes left. We could stop right there, and that's really a good enough lesson to take home with us, isn't it? That our perception of Jesus can draw boundaries around him. That we can decide he was just a a good teacher that lived, or maybe he was just somebody who was kind of different, or, you know, he lived way back then. Or some people can decide that he really caused a lot of damage by bringing in all these new ideas. There's a lot of ways we can think about Jesus. And when we choose to think about him in those ways, we're right. We can think of him as not having any kind of power and effect in our lives. We can think of him as as not really being present with us. And when we think of that in those terms, we're right. Now, it doesn't mean that we can come up with all kinds of wild ideas about Jesus and he's going to be those things. But when it comes to the power and the authority of Jesus in our life, our perception of him and our willingness to understand and accept that power and authority 
is what makes us right in that decision as well. Is Jesus powerful in your life? Will you let him be? Then the answer is yes, and you're right. Is Jesus a very presence in your life that is always there, always there for you to comfort and to guide and to encourage? If you say yes, then you are right. Now, I want to extend that just a little further. Let's go a few more years down the road. Let's jump into the time of the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul did not get to walk with Jesus here on this earth. Now, he did get to see him as a special appearance and blessing in his life. And Paul was a man that was filled with the Holy Spirit beyond what us average folks are, or at least he was able to, to put that to use more than we are. So Paul is high on my list. I have great respect for him. But Paul also had some of the same limitations that we have. For when he went out preaching, he couldn't take Jesus with him in the body, stand him there and say, this is Jesus. He had to talk about him in much the same way that we talk about him. And he had to think about him in much the same way that we have to think about him. And one of the frustrations that Paul had is that many people that he talked to, and in fact even many Christians evidently, failed to realize all that Jesus could be for them in their lives. One group of Christians that was like that was the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a very special place for Paul. He preached there for three years. And Paul didn't stay anywhere for three years except for Ephesus. And so this was, was his home church. This is people that he knew well and he loved. And later on, after he had left there, he began to get disturbed that they were drawing boundaries around who Jesus was. They were no longer realizing who he is and all that he could do for them and with them and through them. And he begins to talk to them. He writes them a letter. And if you'll read those first three chapters of the book of Ephesus, you will be blown away by the power of Jesus. And one more thing you'll notice there is that as he talks about Jesus, he doesn't talk about him as if he used to live and he used to do things. He talks about him as if he is still here and is still active is still working. In fact, he even tells us that he has a body on this earth. Now you know where I'm going, don't you? If we look at Ephesus or Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul states, in fact, we just read it in the call to worship, that the church is the body of Christ. The church is the fullness of Christ. The fullness of him who fills all. Wow. He goes on to say in chapter 2 that the church is the holy temple of the Lord. Then he goes on to say that the church is the glory of God in chapter 3. And then if we skip over to chapter 5 even, he talks about the church is the bride of Christ. Paul is telling us that through the church, Jesus lives and works. Now the question is, 
How do you perceive that? I know people who think of church as unnecessary. They say, Jesus, yes, church, no. They need to read Ephesians. I know people that feel like the church is just something they can do. It's nice, you know. I know people that think a church is rather powerless, that it's old-fashioned. You know, there's just all kinds of words you can come up with to describe why church is really doesn't have to be a part of your life. And you know what? If you think that, you're right. If you say that, well, church has got a lot of people in it that are hypocrites, or church has got a lot of people in it that are weak, church has got a lot of people that, that sin too, you're right. However, I'm not going to ask you to stand, but I think if I ask those of you in this group to stand up and to testify that within church, whether it's another congregation that you previously worked with or this one is your home, that church is the very power of God, that church is the body of Christ, That in church you have found community. In church you have found family. In church you have found love. In church you have found mercy and grace and forgiveness. For truly it is the body of Christ. So, what do you think of Jesus? How active and powerful is he in your life? Is he just someone you think about every once in a while? Or is he someone that lives with you daily? Well, whatever you think in those terms, you're right. And what do you think about church? Whatever you think, you're right. I think that this church is God's power in my life. I think through this church, Jesus has spoken to me often and his arms have held me up. We often talk about here that we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And you guys have been that for me. And I pray that that's what you found here as well. We're going to stand, we're going to sing. And the leaders of this church will be on the perimeters of this room and they're here for you. They're here to take whatever petition you might have to to God They're here to help you to become a part of the body of Christ. Please consider what Paul has said and Mark has said. Let Jesus be who he says he is and let his body be his body in your life. Let's stand and sing.